wasn't recording. Let me start again. I apologize. So we're starting the parsha of Mishpatim, which contains within it many, many monetary laws and many different, uh, probably thousands of pages of Talmud on all the laws in this week's parsha. We're going to go through them as well and as quickly as we can without skipping anything. So the Torah starts off, and these are the commandments, the statute, the laws that you should teach to the Jewish people. They're going to go through many monetary laws that seemingly have absolutely no connection from, from this week to the ending of last week. Last week's parsha was the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now we're starting a brand new parsha that discusses all of the monetary laws of civil damages, of compensation, of guards, of, of uh, animals. And yet the Torah starts off a brand new parsha by saying, And these are the laws. The Torah is trying to tell us a very important message over here. Just like the last Ten Commandments in last week's parasha were obviously given by God at Mount Sinai, no question about it. So to ve'ele and these laws too, the ones that you're going to read now, um, all these seemingly basic, obvious laws of damages, they also were given at Mount Sinai. They're just as holy as the Ten Commandments we read about last week. You shall place these laws before the people. Asher Tosim with them shall place it before them. Hashem says to Moshe, don't think you just tell them, like, this is the law, just do it and obey. You got to explain it to them and explain the reasons and the, as the expression is, like a te- set table before them. When you invite guests to your home, you don't like them to start cooking the meal. Everything's laid out. Like a shulchan aruch, like a set table that they can walk at, they can walk in and be able to eat from the food that you're giving them. Hence the name shulchan aruch, the code of Jewish law, called a set table. From this verse where Hashem tells Moshe that these laws that we're going to discuss today, all of the civil civil damages shall be placed before them like a set table, easy for them to understand and to be able to follow them. What's the first set of laws of civil, of monetary issues we're going to deal with? That of a Jewish slave, which is very fascinating that a nation that just came out of slavery, the very first mitzvah they're being told about is owning slaves. We'll leave it at that. You can uh, think about it more later. Um... And I'll just say that when we hear the word slavery today, people get very, very nervous and defensive because, indeed, slavery is a terrible institution that did many, many terrible crimes against many people. And so when we hear what the Torah speaks about and condones and gives laws how to have slaves, some people get nervous about it and they try and defend it. You have to realize, if you put it into historical context, that slaves had zero rights in society. You go back in time... Not even so long back, but we go back to for sure the times of the Torah. What protections, what rights did slaves have? Nothing. They were property. They were literally just like you're allowed. What? More than just work hard. They, 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 they were your property. Just like if you want to go take this chair and break it. You don't like the chair. You're going to throw it in the garbage. You can break the chair and do whatever you want to it and color on it and step on it and whatever. It's your chair. Slaves were treated the same way. They had no rights. They were your property. You could do with them as you wanted. As we're going to see that the slaves in Jewish law, there's different kinds of slaves, a Jewish slave, a non-Jewish slave, a maid. There's many, many protections that are put into place to protect the dignity of the slave. And so even though the world needed the labor of slaves back then to exist, it's not like today with machinery. Today we don't realize how hard it is to produce things. Today machines go plowing and they... Then hard labor is how the world survived. But slaves were not considered property. In fact, the Talmud says you acquired a slave, you acquired a master. Because if you only had uh, one, one meal, you have to give it to him over yourself. If you only had one pillow, the slave got it before you got it. 
many, many such laws you had to do for the protection of the slave. The first law is that if you acquire a Jewish slave, he only works for you six years. After six years, on the seventh year, the sabbatical year, the Shemitah year, he goes free. That doesn't mean seven years from when you hire him, seven years from the Shemitah year. Whatever the Shemitah year is, all slaves went free. So already you see that a slave, a Jewish slave, cannot become your property. He goes free after a certain number of years. Whenever the, Yobel, whenever the Shemitah year is, he goes free. If he came into the slavery unmarried, even though the owner, the master, is allowed to marry off a slave to a non-Jewish slave woman in order for him to produce children who will belong to the master, these wife and children do not become the family of the Jewish slave. If he came in unmarried, he remains unmarried when he leaves at the end of seven years. These uh, children still remain the property of the master. However, if he came in with uh, a wife, the Yatsa Ishtaima, his wife goes out with him. What it means his wife goes out with him. His wife wasn't part of the slavery. The master that bought the slave was also required to give food to the family of the Jewish slave that he had bought. Um, if the, however, what happens comes to Shemitah year and the master, the slave says, I don't want to go home. I like it here. It's a good place. I'm like my master. I like my wife that I just got now, my non-Jewish maid wife. I want to stay. I don't want to go back home to where I came from. There I was poor. There I had no money. There I don't think, you know, I was, we don't understand what poverty meant. Today we think poverty, okay, you go get food stamps and you go to, there's a food bank and then you go, uh, Chabad gives that food every Wednesday, you know what I'm saying? We don't appreciate, in those days, if you were poor, you literally just starved to death. There was no food meant you went to sleep hungry. You had no food. It was that simple. It wasn't, uh, poverty then was real. And, um, and so he said, I don't want to go home back to no food, no money. Here I have food. I have everything I need. So there's a way for the slave to remain within the control of his master, which is he goes to the doorpost and the, the owner, the master, pierces his right ear against the standing doorframe of a door. So the doorframe has to be actually standing upright in the doorframe, right next to the mezuzah. And he pierces his ear. And then he becomes a slave forever, although the word forever does not mean forever. It means until the Yovel, until the Jubilee year. Why do we pierce his ear against the door? So Hashem says that the ear that heard at Mount Sinai, where we, God said to us that now I took you out of Egypt to be slaves to me, to Hashem, and this ear heard and is ignoring and does not want to be a slave to Hashem, therefore the ear should be pierced. Why is it pierced against the doorway? Because the doorway that had the blood in Egypt, when God passed over all of the Jewish homes to kill all the Egyptian firstborns, and he chose the Jewish people to be for us, and he passed over the Jewish homes, so the doorway saw how much God, how God chose you to be his. Your ear heard how God said you will be his, but you still choose to be servants to a human being instead of to God Almighty, therefore your ear is pierced. Seemingly, it seems that no. Um, it's a very good question. The question was whether the ears of the Egyptian of the Jews or in general the people pierced their ears back then. It seems that not. If you read in the Torah, what were the rings that the that people wore back then? Not rings, uh, earrings, not earrings, there were nose rings. Nose rings are very, very, very with nose rings, it seemed like that was a popular thing back then. And then the fact you don't find anywhere that are mentioned about earrings, but you do find nose rings mentioned a few different times. And in fact, it seems that the fact that he pierced his ears would imply that that was like some kind of act of shame. Now, I would think that a nose on a ring on your nose, like you pull the guy by the nose, like it's a, 
Yeah, like, uh, yeah. But whatever. Who am I to judge on why people put nose rings in their nose? But um, it seems that earrings then was obviously not what people normally did. It wasn't the culture. And therefore, the act of shame was, it had to be distinctive. Or else, what's the point? The piercing the ear. If everyone wears, walked around earrings, right? Okay. Um, if uh, now we come to a person selling his daughter. Now, I know this sounds terrible. Selling off your daughter sounds terrible. So we have to explain a few things. First of all, in Jewish law, a woman could never be sold as a slave, only a man. So if a man, how did a man get sold as a slave? Either he uh, stole money he couldn't pay back, or he was too broke, he was too desperate. He had to steal for food to get sold. If a woman steals, they don't, she doesn't get sold as a slave. The idea of selling a woman as a slave does not exist in Judaism. You cannot buy a woman as a slave, a Jewish woman as a slave. So what we're talking about over here is a girl who has not yet reached maturity. She's not yet 12 years old. And she's living with her father who doesn't have food to provide for his daughter. He, he doesn't have food for her. So the idea of child marriage, also you don't have in Torah, that you're going to marry off this child, which is not young, you know, she's too young to have children. So the Torah gives the father a way to protect his daughter, which is to give her to a master, to someone, who will either keep her, we're going to learn three things, we're going to learn, I'll tell you the outside, either will keep her till she reaches the age of maturity, once she reaches puberty, she automatically goes back free for free. Then she does not remain the property of the master. It's only to take care of her while she's a girl until she reaches the age of puberty, number one. Or number two, he marries her. So if the master now, so when she reaches the age of puberty, basically when she reaches the age of puberty, he has to make a choice. Either he lets her go back free, or he says, now you will stay with me as a wife, not as a maid, and not as a slave, but as a wife, with all of the conditions of marriage, which means... He has to provide for three things that every man obligates himself to an exuba. In the marriage document, a man obligates himself to providing for the clothing, the food, and the sexual gratification of his spouse, of his wife. So one way, by the way. And he has to provide that. So this girl that he took as a umma, as a maid, now he marries her with all these conditions. But he does not need to give her a new exuba and pay. Normally by exuba, you give a ring or you give uh, money. Does not need to do that because the money he gave to the father gets transferred onto the marriage, or he gives the girl to his son. If he's too old, his son can marry this young girl, and um, who's not young anymore. She's reached maturity, she's reached puberty, and she now has a home in which to, to live. If, however, when she reaches puberty, the master does not want to marry her, she has not uh, found favor in his eyes, he cannot sell her to another person. She can never be sold again. Once she, she went to this one person, either he keeps her or he go, she goes back to her father, to her home. And so too, not only can the master not sell to another person, so too the father who sold her once cannot sell her again for he's already betrayed her once by selling, to, by selling her to someone who did not eventually marry her. And that's enough. Um, and then, so that, those are the conditions. Either he marries her, the son marries her, or she goes free without paying the master back anything, she automatically gains back her, free, her freedom. Yes, question. She was not a sex slave in any way or using any, the master was not allowed to be intimate with her. Unless he married her, he was forbidden to be intimate with her. And if he did, that was considered a sin for which to be punished. We're going to get soon to the laws of a master that hits or beats a slave and how they, they were held liable for the way they treated their slaves. We're going to get to that in a minute. Okay, then we have the laws of murder and manslaughter, which will include different kinds of intentional murder, accidental murder, including even the murder of a slave and the liability of the owner. So 
So Torah starts off, Ma if a person, if a man hits another person and he dies, he shall be put to death. And the death that he gets over here is, I think, a stoning. Um, find it. Now there's several different times in the Torah, three different times in the Torah where we talked about the laws of killing someone. Each time that it's mentioned here in the book of Ayikr, in the book of Dvarim, there's different variations how it's written. I'm not going to get to the different words of the, the long Rashis, but the point is that any adult, it's not only a male, it could be a female also, it could be, uh, or even uh, uh, who, who strikes a person, it could be a man, a woman, or a child, any living person, but it doesn't say a person, it says a man. You know, other verses tell us it means anyone, in order to show that it has to be a living person. So if it's, let's say, a, 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 a baby that was just born, that has not yet lived 30 days, but a non-viable, premature baby, um, that would not be considered putting someone to death as murder. Someone's about to die is another discussion too. But it has to be someone that's living, a viable person, and you strike that person in the way that they die, and they eventually die, even if it's not immediate, even if they die later, the person is put to death for having killed someone else. However, if he did not premeditate to kill this person, and rather Elohim in Aliyado, which literally means God placed it into his hand. In that case, since God put it into his hand, he is considered manslaughter. In today's English, we call manslaughter. He didn't plan, it was an accidental uh, murder. He does not get put to death. He has to run to the cities of refuge, which will be discussed at great length elsewhere in the Torah, and we'll discuss it there. Point is, God put it into his hand. So that's why it says that evil comes uh, from e- evil comes out from evil because a person had the Torah explains that if a person had killed someone else before there were no witnesses and he had gotten away with it, so God puts it into his hand that he'll be standing under a ladder, and someone else that had done an accidental sin for which he has to go to the city of refuge will be climbing up the ladder and he'll God will make it he'll fall down the ladder landing on the other person killing the person so the person that deserved to be killed is killed. God makes it happen that way. And the person that deserves to go to the city of refuge, because he deserved this, now he fell off the ladder from the witnesses, he goes to the city of refuge. It was all arranged by the hand of Hashem. If the person acted intentionally against his fellow Jew with intention to kill him, in that case, he had intention to kill him, he has to be put to death, even from the Mizbeach, you shall take him to die. Meaning, if he thinks, I'll run into the base of Migdash. And I'll hide over there. I'll be in a holy place. You can't kill me because I'm doing a mitzvah. Even from the altar, even in the state of holiness, we take him to be put to death. There's a few laws we learn over here that he has to have intention to kill him with guile, with, with bad intention. However, if a person kills someone without intention to kill. So, for example, uh, officer is trying, is administering lashes as a court, you know, administered punishment. Or a doctor is doing a surgery. Or a father is uh, teaching his son. Etc. In these cases, where even though he was hitting the person, but he wasn't hitting with the intention to kill, he was hitting with the intention on purpose, like he was doing a surgery. So you're cutting open the person, you're making them bleed. An officer is, uh, you know, trying to restrain a person, etc. In a case where it was done with intention for good, even though the person ended up dying at this act, the person would not be the, the one that caused the death would not be liable because there was no. Yazid each there was no intention to cause death by what he was doing. His intention was not to act in a negative way, but to act in a good way. And the Torah tells us if you hit your father or your mother, even when you just hit them, not where you put them to death or anything, just the act of hitting your father or your mother, which makes a wound on them, 
not just you know uh, giving them five. You make a bruise or anything like that, cause their blood. In that case, you are put to death for having hit your parents. Obviously, that's unique to parents because the obligation of honoring your parents is much greater than any other human being. If a person steals a person, meaning he kidnaps a man or a woman, and then he sells him or her, he must be put to death. If the witnesses saw both the selling and the, the both the stealing, you have the, the, the kidnapped person in your possession and you sold this person, the kidnapper is put to death by strangulation, as is the same punishment of strangulation for hitting your parents. However, someone curses their parents, if you curse your parents, you are also put to death. However, the, the death sentence is not strangulation, but it is stoning. Okay? Now, last law, if you if a person if a person uh, hits another person while they're fighting, so two people have a, they're fighting with each other, and God forbid one's intention to kill the other person. And while he's trying to kill the person by mistake, he kills a third person. Okay? So here he kills the other person. If he does not die right away, becomes bedridden, he's wounded, he's in a hospital. So we arrest the person that committed the act to see if the person that was wounded will live or die. That's first of all. And then if the person that was wounded heals and is able to walk on his own, the person that hit him goes free. However, he must pay for the damages, the loss of work that the guy wasn't able to work. He has to pay for his doctor, all of his medical bills. He has to pay for he has to pay for his medical bills. In addition, if you let him lose a wound, or lose a, an organ or, a, or an arm or whatever, to pay for the damages of the loss of what he would have been worth on the slave market with the with before the damage, for the blemish and after. Um, so let's say he limps now. So you know, a limping slave is worth less money than a non-limping slave. So you have to pay the difference in value. So that's the damage, the loss of work, the medical bills. The pain that he experienced during the time that he was sick. How do you value pain? The court have to sit and decide. You can't say, I bought the right to your arms. I can just chop off your arm, do what I want with it. The pain that a person experienced during that illness, to pay for that. And finally, the shame. So there's baish, the shame of being wounded. There's a shame if your person limps, for example, they have a wound, they have a missing arm. There's a certain level of shame they carry in the rest of their lives. A certain, and you got to pay for those five things. Okay.